What are the secrets of those extraordinary individuals that have achieved extraordinary success? Listen to their stories, discover their knowledge bursts, make those connections. Get ready. It's time to start moving forward. John Lim here. We've got a great episode in store for you. Alex Sharfin, CEO of the Sharfin Institute, where his mission is to help evolutionary entrepreneurs grow, scale, and thrive. He is the author of the book, The Entrepreneurial Personality Type, and host of the fantastic podcast series, Momentum for the Entrepreneurial Personality Type. How are you today, Alex? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me, brother. Oh, no, thank you. And uh, I've got to give a shout out to a mutual friend of ours, Yigala Dato. He's the one who connected us. I had him on the show a couple months ago. Great guy and also a very inspiring entrepreneur. So I was so excited when he introduced us and really, really, really excited for you to share your story. So Alex, I mean, I just covered kind of like the surface stuff. I mean, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career journey. Okay. Um, man, that is such a big question, isn't yeah. it, John? <laughs> so uh, I'll just give you like the brief summary. I was always a really unique kid. You know, I was one of those kids that um, adults would say, hey, look, it's John and Amy and Alex. <laughs> you were the and, huh? I was that guy. And and I knew it, John. You know, I was I was well aware of the fact that I was different than the kids around me, that um that, you know, I I I I didn't really fit in. I didn't understand where I belonged. And so as a kid, rather than, you know, what a lot of kids do, getting involved in school or making a lot of friends, you know, I was pretty tragic when it came to social awareness. Mm-hmm. I um I had a hard time communicating with other people. And so I had a stutter when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, uh, I, I actually grew up in Mexico City. So when I moved to the States, I had a really challenging accent. And um, as a kid, I, I you know, I, I didn't I didn't think I belonged. You know, I, yeah. I, I had a really hard time figuring out where I belonged. And rather than leaning into school or teachers or any of those things, you know, I, I started reading um, mm. very young. I wanted to figure out where what my place was in this world. And I obsessively read about success. And I started with self-help books. John, do, have you have you ever read so many self-help books that they start contradicting each other? <laughs> yeah, I think we've all been there. Yeah, you know absolutely. what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so here I am, like eight or nine years old, trying to figure out my place in the whoa, world. Whoa, so Alex, I mean, you're starting at eight or nine. I mean, that is unusual to be to be diving into that kind of material. Yeah, I know. I think that um, I think that I was like so fundamentally different than the rest of the people in the world that that I just I didn't know where I belonged and it drove me um, to try and figure it out. Yeah. And so I was a, I was eight or nine years old. I, I remember going to a garage sale with my mom. It's a yard sale in the rest of the country, but in California they were called garage sales. Right. And, uh, there was a guy selling a box of personal development stuff. It was like Tony Robbins. I remember it like it was yesterday. I actually have all this stuff on my shelf. I went and bought a replica of the box so I could have it and look at it. But it was Tony Robbins and Bander and Grindler and some original NLP stuff, Dr. Wayne Dyer, um, uh, Maxwell Malt, uh, the, the, it was, it was like the most intense box of stuff and it was tape sets. And, you know, back then, a, a Tony Robbins tape set was like $150 just for one. Yeah. And he had like seven of them in this box and the box was marked a hundred dollars. And I followed my mom around the garage sale for like 20 minutes saying like, mom, this is why you need to buy it. And this is why I need that stuff. And I really want it. And, how did, how did you your know, mom react? I mean, like, I mean, most kids going to a garage sale, I mean, they'll, they'll be attracted to the shiny toys or 
some some comic books. I mean, you're going after something that is pretty unusual for an eight year old. And what was your mom's reaction? Well, my my parents didn't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. and and our garage sale budget on a weekend was probably ten bucks. You know, they were looking for stuff that was twenty five to fifty cents, so we could come home with enough to keep the family going. Yeah, and a um, hundred dollars on a box was like an absolute no deal. There was no way, no chance. But after about twenty five minutes of begging my mom, the guy who had the garage sale got up from behind his table, walked out into the middle of like the driveway, grabbed the box, handed it to me, and he said, "Kid." You need these more than anybody I've ever met. They're yours. Wow. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. That's, I mean, what was your reaction to that? Um, I just got a little emotional even thinking about it. Uh, I I cried. Yeah. Uh, I cried because that whole time I was begging my mom, I didn't think there was any chance I was going to get them, but I knew that there was something there that I needed. And so I took them home and I started listening to them. And I was a confused kid to begin with. When you infuse Wayne Dyer, Tony Robbins, Vander and Grindler into a confused kid, it confuses the teachers and the kids around that kid. So I think that made me even more different. But what happened was I started, I got like into personal development once I listened to this stuff and I started reading more. And by the time I got to 10 books, all of them were contradicting each other. You know, number nine was saying number seven didn't matter and so on. (laughs) And so um, I pivoted. And I started studying successful people because, John, I was so far from success. As I went through school, I was always the standout, the troublemaker, the disciplinary problem. I had been told I was um, developmentally disordered, developmentally disabled, Mm. dyslexic, dysmorphic, dysgraphic. I heard retarded from my teachers. Wow. And so I went looking at what is success. And so I read every life history I could get my hand on, third-party accounts, everything I could that would tell me, like, what did people do to be successful? And here's what happened, John. Throughout my entire childhood, throughout my early adulthood, I kept – and even today, I've got a a bookshelf full of biographies and autobiographies and and recorded histories. And what I found was the more I studied success – the more I found people just like me. Mm-hmm. You know, Albert Einstein didn't talk until he was four years old. Yeah. Pythagoras was killed for his beliefs because he was so stubborn. Socrates walked out into the middle of the field and drank poison rather than say he would agree with everybody else. Newton was so antisocial, he was sitting under an apple tree all by himself when the apple hit him in the head and he discovered gravity. And what I found going out looking for this nebulous thing called success was I kept finding people that were just like me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way that I express it today is that society has this equation. If you don't look like everyone else, talk like everyone else, show up like everyone else and learn exactly like everyone else, you're a broken person. We should medicate and change. And the fact is history shows if you don't look like everyone else, talk like everyone else, show up like everyone else and learn like everyone else, that's a brilliant person that's going to change the world. And so for me as a kid, I took solace in the fact that the more I understood what success was, the more I figured I might be able to get there. And it was very early in my childhood that I started working with my father out of necessity. My parents lost a business. They didn't go bankrupt, but they lost a business. Mm. My dad and I started working in flea markets. I became the guy behind the table as a very small kid, under 10 years old, selling stuff in a flea market on the weekends. And, you know, Throughout my adulthood, people have said, wow, it's so sad you didn't have a normal childhood. And every time somebody says that, I think to myself, if only you understood. Mm. (laughs) I spent spent incredible time with my dad. And 
I learned how to sell at a very young age and, and I didn't want a normal childhood. I didn't understand other kids. But the first time I stood behind a table and somebody walked up and asked a couple questions and then bought something, it was like this lightning strike. I, I, I remember feeling like this is where I belong. This is what I should be doing. And so from a very young age, my obsession was business and commerce and exchange. And how do you make that happen over and over again? Because what I realized very quickly is that the rules in the rest of the world didn't really make sense. School didn't make sense. Grades seemed completely arbitrary. I didn't know what pay attention means. Some things worked for me. Some things didn't. I didn't know how to survive anywhere. But when I got into a business situation, it's like there were rules, there was a vocabulary, mm-hmm. there was there was a process, and, and it people worked. who look like you, yeah, and and a lot of people who who were like me, yeah. and so, you know, my my life history is one of obsessing over how do you make business grow, and then when I got into my early twenties, I was a Fortune five hundred consultant. I worked with some of the most intelligent people in the world, some of the most successful people in the world, consulted directly with people who were worth nine figures, ten figures, and. I realized that you can make business grow up to the point where you have to make people grow. Yeah. Because the business doesn't grow without the people. So then my obsession was how do you help people grow? And the fact is this, John, I realized in all of my work and all my reading and all my my research that it wasn't just any people. See, I, I, I don't think that you and I are like the rest of the world. No, clearly not. I mean, that's why we're sitting on this podcast today. On uh, Well, and that's you know. why anyone listening, you're not like the rest of the world or yeah. you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. You Absolutely. know, the fact is every night there's a show like Wheel of Fortune that plays on network TV. If I mean, some people, you know, some of you listening don't even know what that means. Yeah. Like that means that every night at 730, there's a pre-programmed time where they hit play and they play a game show. Yeah. And on any night where that game show doesn't play, thousands of people call the TV station and say, where's my Wheel of Fortune? We are not like them. No, <laughs> clearly not. Absolutely. Well, Alex, I, I'm so curious because this is such an interesting story, and I'm going to change up my next question. You know, you started out getting the, the entrepreneurial spark at a fairly young age, and, and it, it, it really started with your identity. So I'm going to ask this. I mean, at what age – because being an entrepreneur, as you well know, is all about being resilient. It's about having the right frame of mind, looking at failures from the right perspective and being able to pivot and grow from that. So at what age did you really start learning about the failure aspect or the setbacks that come with be- being an entrepreneur? Oh, man, I think that was like from my youngest age, John. Yeah. I didn't I didn't I mean, I, you know, John, how old were you when you first knew you were different than the people around you? Probably about six when I when I okay, was in so, first yeah, grade. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. It was like when I encountered other people, the failures began. Yeah, I I didn't know how to act socially. I was uncomfortable and awkward with other people. Um, you know, when I was in a situation like school, which is a very false, harsh, difficult environment, especially for someone who asks too many questions, has too much energy, moves around too much, wiggles, and you know wants to change things, and so. I was I, I was seen as and felt like a failure from my earliest memories. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it was it was almost like I had this secret in my mind that there was another way to do this. You know, um, that there was another way to create success because I had read about it over and over again. You didn't have to follow the standard path. You know, when I when I found out that Einstein had failed algebra twice and I was in my second year of algebra, I started feeling like, hey, I'm not a complete failure. Yeah. And, you know, little by little, the 
feelings of being a failure and isolated and alone and being a party of one started to melt away. That's great. Because the more you read about successful people, the more you realize that they're just like us. You know, the fact is the rest of the world clings to average and worships the status quo. They actually want to be like everyone else. It's like wheat, you know, in a field bending back and forth. Most people don't want to stand out, be different, be new, do something extraordinary. And the fact is there's a small percentage of the population made up of people like you and I that throughout history have changed the world. But the fact also is, is that small percentage of the population is eccentric and odd and weird and different. And all of the things that we typically hear about the kids who are behavioral disorders are the ones who don't belong or the ones who don't really fit in. Because let's be very clear, if you were just like everyone else, you'd be average. And it takes someone extraordinary to change the world. So awkward, different, weird, doesn't fit in. To me, those are all symptoms of brilliance. Uh, I love it. And Alex, I mean, how did talk about, you know, later on when you got into business, when you were building businesses, how did those experiences, those formative experiences, can you share a little bit about how they helped you kind of weather any difficult periods you may have had? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I when I got in, so at 21 years old, I I had a series of fortunate events and I became a, a consultant in the Fortune 500 level. My first client was Fuji Media. Mm-hmm. My second client was SanDisk Memory Cards. I got another division of Fuji Digital next. So in the early 90s, I was involved with the original distribution of flash memory. It had never been in the market before. Yeah. We put digital cameras in the market for the first time. I worked with some of the most intelligent people in the world. Um, I was at the C-suite level with a lot of the companies I represented. And the obsession with studying successful people continued at that point because here I was up close and personal with the people who were extraordinary and different and changing the world. And John, they were just like you and I, (laughs) awkward and different. And I related to them incredibly well. I think part of the reason that I did well and continue to do well is that wildly successful people and I get along very well. They understand or they very quickly identify that I know how they feel and I understand where they're coming from and I can help them. And I think that a lot of it or maybe all of it has to do with the obsession around how do we help people like us create success because we're fundamentally different. John, I I have this theory. There's four types of people in the world. And I'll let you and everyone else listening self-qualify to see what type of person you are. Mm-hmm. And, and I can do this fast. So okay. when, I'm doing this in, when I'm doing this in public, I do it in like 25 minutes. But let's do the four-minute version. Yeah. So the first group of people in the world is this very big group of people. They take care of other people. I call them the caretakers. Mm-hmm. These are the people who like the act of taking care of people. And what's interesting is when I share this with entrepreneurs, they often say, that's me. Because all of us want to help other people. But, John, I can qualify or disqualify you from this category with one simple question. Do you enjoy changing bedpans? (laughs) No, I do not. Did you see how you just laughed? Yeah. That's the reaction I get from a lot of entrepreneurs when I ask the question. But here's what's interesting. When I say – Um, to somebody who, you know, I've I've been in a situation where somebody has just changed a bedpan and I'm always in awe that people do work like that and they don't mind. And I've asked the question, Hey, do you enjoy changing bedpans? And here's what a caretaker will say. A caretaker is someone who's hardwired to take care of other people around them. They will actually say, well, Alex, if that person needed the bedpan changed and I could be of service and I was here to be able to help make their life easier, then yes, I'm fulfilled. And I'm like, holy crap, I feel like I needed to write a bigger check. Yeah. 
Right. And, and so, but evolutionarily, John, can you see why our tribe, why the greater human tribe needed caretakers? Guys like you and I wouldn't do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you're not a caretaker. Let's go on to number two. The second group of people and caretakers, I think they're the biggest part of the population. Like there's a massive group out there that like to take care of other people. And man, we're so lucky to have them. Right. Yeah. The second group of people is communicators. Now, these are the people that like to communicate and they like to carry on oral tradition, like to talk. They like to share things. Now, oftentimes people look at guys like you and I and they say, well, they must be communicators. They have podcasts, they're speakers, they go out and share, but I can qualify you or disqualify you from caretaker with one simple question. Do you enjoy small talk? No, I actually don't. (laughs) Probably not at all, right? Like as soon as small talk starts, I'm plotting my escape. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Well, and, and you know, when I walk into a building and somebody says, hey, did you feel the weather out there? I'm like, why are you wasting my time with this impossibly useless question? And the weather is no longer a relevant topic of conversation. Since we've been able to control environments, give it up. And, but I don't say that. I just smile and I say, yeah, it was hot. <laughs> yeah. But, and then get the hell out of there as fast yeah. as I can. And, and so, but did our greater human tribe need the communicator throughout history? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just like the we caretaker. Needed, yeah. We needed the oral tradition. We needed somebody to say, hey, don't eat this. You'll die. Don't go over there. There's a woolly mammoth. There's a cliff over there that you'll fall off of. We needed the person who was willing to talk about anything. And it's interesting because you can get two caretakers together. And if you want to see that this is a hardwired behavior, just watch a water cooler because two caretakers will go to a water cooler and they'll have a 45 minute discussion about a half hour TV show. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So the third group, and this is a group where entrepreneurs do not normally say, oh, I'm one of those. The third group is the coordinators. My code word, though, is the memorizers, the organizers. These are the people who like fine print. They like details. They love committees. They love um, congresses. They love contracts, not because there's a deal, but because there's a contract. So I can qualify you for coordinator with one simple question, John. Yes. How many committees have you voluntarily put yourself on? Oh, uh, the keyword is voluntary. <laughs> so I, very few. I can count on probably one hand. Any That's more than most entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, any committees I've been on, it, I wouldn't say they've been voluntary. I'll put it to you that way. Right. And, and how many would you volunteer for in the future? Uh, as few as possible. Right. Because, see, coordinators love committees. They love being on the committee. They love the process of being in a committee. They love the whole call to order garbage that you and I are like, holy crap, can't we just get this over with? Yeah. But do, did we need coordinators throughout history? Yes. Absolutely. We need somebody to memorize the seasons, to memorize the days of the week, to tell us when we needed to have food for winter, all of the things that you and I would forget. So now if we look at our evolutionary human tribe and we understand that we have caretakers, communicators, and coordinators, go back 5,000 years. What's missing from our evolutionary tribe? We have the people who take care of people, those who carry on oral tradition and communication for the tribe, and then those who coordinate, memorize, and organize. What are we missing, John? We're missing the the doers, the people who kind of think outside the box and try different things. I've got something for you to try on for size. Yeah. What if I told you we were missing the evolutionary hunters? Mm, interesting. Well, define that for our, for our listeners, evolutionary hunters. Well, I'll define it for you, John, because I think you are an evolutionary hunter. We are the people who get up every day and must be on the hunt. We must be moving forward, creating momentum, finding something new, finding a better path, a better way, improving the conditions of the, for, the, for the people around us, making the world a better place, and actually achieving and succeeding on the hunt. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And haven't you been on the hunt your whole life? Aren't you on the hunt right now? Absolutely. I think ever since I was six, and I, I went through a lot of what you did, Alex, you know, just going to school and not feeling like I fit in. I was always sort of, uh, you know, the oddball out. And uh, I hated small talk. <laughs> I hated committees. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I always thought that, uh, you know, why, why am I thinking about things that no one else thinks about? Because you're an evolutionary hunter. We are the smallest population in the world, but we are hardwired dynamically differently than the rest of the world. In fact, let me prove it to you, John. Let's look at the thinking that it takes to be a communicator. Sorry, a caretaker, a communicator, or a coordinator. Mm -hmm. If you are caretaking, communicating, or coordinating, it is all in the present. It is right now. It's in front of you. That's why all three of those groups strive for average and cling to the status quo. But evolutionary hunters get up every day, and we are that small percentage of the population that goes into the future, decides what could happen, comes back to the present, and instead of just daydreaming about what could be – we expose ourselves to the vulnerability and the challenges it takes to make it real. Yeah. And so we live in the future and the rest of the world lives in today. So I'm not saying that caretakers, coordinators, and communicators are out to get us. But there is a faction within each one of those that can't stand us and will do everything they can to suppress entrepreneurial personality types like you and I, to challenge the evolutionary hunter, to regulate, legislate, and lock us out of existence because we upset their world. Mm. Well, Alex, let me ask you this because I came from the corporate world and and I really felt towards the end, I really felt boxed in. I really felt uh, – you know, I was, I was in a cage. Yeah. And, and I, I don't use that analogy lightly. You know, it, it just felt like I was very restricted. And, um, you know, the, the goal of my show is to speak to, and I, I like, I like the phrase evolutionary hunter. I'd never heard that before. So I'm glad you're sharing that with me today and our listeners. There are evolutionary hunters, I think, in every, every pocket. You'll find them in every office. You'll find them in, in the neighborhoods, in the streets. You'll find them in all these different pockets. And they're not allowed where they're not encouraged to be who they are. They are suppressed, as you will say, where they're encouraged, we're coerced to just kind of conform and just kind of go with the flow, you know, be, be what they're not. And, and speak to that person, Alex. So what is your advice to that one person? Maybe that one person who is listening to this, who's in that cubicle prison, who, you know, knows that they don't quite fit in. John, it's so important. Because we are evolutionary hunters. We are hardwired to create momentum, to go forward, to create new outcomes, to change the world. Yeah. And the challenge is you, you said you, know, you felt the suppression. I call it also constraint. Yeah. When evolutionary hunters feel constraint, everything that makes us appeal magi- appear magical in the world, that allows us to create new outcomes, companies, businesses, new resolutions, change the world, inventions, uh, change populations' lives, make things happen – When we are constrained, all of our strengths look like weaknesses. Our innate motivation to move forward makes us look hyperactive and and defective. Or ADHD. That's another phrase I think that we're acronym that gets thrown out a lot. I've been diagnosed with ADD, ADHD, Asperger's, um, uh, 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 and, and autism. And the fact is, here's why. 
it depended on how I showed up that day. It depended on who was diagnosing that day. It depended on how much constraint I was under. Today, I help people create eight-figure, nine-figure, and 10-figure companies. And the fact is, I'm asymptomatic 99% of the time because I live a life where I don't allow constraint. See, I don't think you and I are like the rest of the world. And I want to talk directly to the person you just described. Yeah. If you're stuck in that cubicle and you know you're different, here's how I know it feels. It feels like you're different and you're awkward and you're like a party of one and you're the only person going through these things. And I want you to know with perspective, having studied the most successful people in history, having sat next to some of the most successful people alive today, that when you think back through the version of history that you remember, when you think back to anyone who matters to be remembered, they were just like us. Mm. And I want you to bring up the names right now in your mind of who mattered to you. I shared some with you. For me, it's people like Einstein and Pythagoras and Socrates and Aristotle and, and Da Vinci and Michelangelo and Picasso and people who were so different that the outcome they created in the world was almost otherworldly. When you look at Jefferson and Washington and Edison, people in the early United States that changed everything, had so many inventions, they're hard to catalog. When you think of those people, if you're that person stuck in a cubicle, I want you to know something. You may never have heard this before, but that is your tribe. They are just like us, and there is nothing wrong with you. And you are not alone. Really, really great advice for our Moving Forward listeners. Hey, Moving Forward listeners, you can find links to many of the books and resources mentioned by today's guest, along with offers to try out Audible and Amazon Prime. These are affiliate links for which I receive a small commission, which helps the podcast and is greatly appreciated. You can find these on the write-up for today's episode at bemovingforward.com. Alex, we're going to do a little time travel now, and and I love this question, and I specifically am excited to ask you this. Let's go back. We're going to step into a time machine. Speaking of time travel, we're going to go back to, let's pick a period in your childhood. You're going to meet yourself as a child. During those times where you were struggling and you felt like you didn't fit in, you're going to give yourself one piece of advice. What What would that piece of advice be? The amount of people whose opinions actually matter is a fraction of what you think it is Mm. and seek out the people who you respect, who make you feel comfortable, who make you feel like you're feeling progress, who make you feel like you're in momentum, who make you feel like you're moving forward and ignore everyone else. I love it. And here's the flip side, knowing you as well as you do, how would young Alex have responded to that advice? It all depends on how I presented it. If if I had had respect for myself, I might have listened to it. You know, I, I think of my life growing up, and, and John, you can probably relate to this. I can count on one hand the adults in my life who saved my life. Mm. They were like me. Yeah. They related to me. They treated me in as an individual, and they understood what I was going through. And if I had shown up in that way, I probably would have heard myself and – um you know, having, having gone through the hypothetical, I really hope that I would have. Yeah, absolutely. I, pre- I really appreciate your candor. Well, Alex, how can our listeners learn more about you, especially the ones who want to learn more about the entrepreneurial personality type? 
Well, the best way, John, is to go to iTunes and look up our podcast. It's called Momentum for the Entrepreneurial Personality Type. Um, I don't like to talk about myself in in, uh, in in gratuitous terms, but I'll share some of the testimonials we've gotten. People have told us that it's the first podcast that explains exactly who they are. If you're in marketing, I had an online marketer tell me that most marketers are sharing the same seven to 10 thoughts and that this is the first podcast he's listened to all 45 episodes and not one of them was a rehash of anything he's heard anywhere else. So if you're looking to understand yourself better, stop limiting behavior and create unlimited momentum, that podcast will do it for you. I put my best content there. And really what we used to sell as entry level products is all in the podcast. And so if you want to create massive momentum, go to momentumpodcast.com. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google. And I'd love to get a review from you if you end up listening to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And we'll have it all on the write-up. So I encourage you moving forward listeners, check it out. Well, Alex, I'd love to have you close out the show. So using about maybe three to five words, what parting wisdom would you like to share with moving forward listeners? Man, three to five words is quite the constraint there, John. <laughs> I would just say it's all about momentum. And don't forget that it just, if, as long as people like you and I are moving forward, then that's when we look gifted. That's when we can create insane outcomes in the world, and that's when we are at our absolute best. So you know what I love what you did there is that you you just you didn't you didn't fall into the constraint. You just went ahead and shared <laughs> the most authentic thought, and I loved every single word of that. So Alex, bravo to you, awesome, Alex. I want to thank you so much. This has been an explosive episode. I got so much out of it today. I know moving forward listeners did today as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. John, it was my privilege and pleasure to be here, brother. Thank you. And Moving Forward listeners, check it out. BeMovingForward.com. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, at BeMovingForward. Join us next Tuesday for another extraordinary guest. Have a great week. And remember, always be moving forward. Now it's time for you to move forward and unlock the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and Bali Solutions, LLC. All rights reserved.